0: And welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with
1: Andrea Subasati. And we're back. We're back. Eight years. This is our eight year anniversary episode. We started the podcast December 2012. 2012. Holy shit. That seems like an eternity ago. Sitting on my couch, mm-hmm. my old apartment, mm-hmm. with a shitty rock band mic. Yep. No
0: one cared who we were. Mm-mm. No one knew what podcast. Well, people knew what podcasts were, but
1: they certainly were not as familiar with them as they are now. No, there certainly weren't as many, and there certainly weren't any like ours at the time. Now there are lots, and some really good ones.
0: Yeah, and um, we're so happy to be part of this community. Mm-hmm. And uh, just off the top, thank you, Andrea. Um, Thank you for being an amazing podcasting partner. Thank you to our wonderful editor, Alan. Um, And thank you to you, all of our listeners, whether you're dropping in for this episode or you've been with us for years. Um, Really appreciate getting to be part of your days. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you, Alex. And thank you to those listeners who jumped on our Patreon. Super cool. And those of you who didn't, man, it's cool. Times are tough. Like, we're, we're putting as much um, effort into our main feed as we always have. We're committed to making sure this content is accessible to everyone, and uh, we appreciate your support in any form, whether it's dropping a review or sharing it with someone else who you think might like the show. That's why we've grown over the last eight years. That's why we're still doing it. So thank you. But today we've got a very special episode. Mm -hmm. I
0: mean, not only is December our anniversary month, it's also the holidays. And so we've tackled a lot of Christmas films. We've tackled uh, films
1: that feel festive in some way. Uh And I think that's the case with today's film. I think so. There's something about that fairy tale vibe that folklore vibe that just lends itself to the yuletide season oral traditions around the campfire like yeah it's not a christmas movie it's not even very snowy but it feels like it. yeah but um we're going to ascend from our current realities mm-hmm. and
0: venture into something new something really magical and a really special film
1: and today we're talking about Guillermo del Toro's pan's Labyrinth love this movie love this movie and there's a lot there are layers there are dimensions this movie is as powerful today as it was back in 2006 mm-hmm. when it came out that was kind of a shock to me I think I always think of Guillermo del Toro's career as you know having started in independent Mexican in cinema before Hollywood got its claws in, and, you know, we've done episodes on Mimic where we talked about, you know, his struggles with the Hollywood machine in that movie. We talked about The Devil's Backbone. That which was in our first year. That was episode nine, yeah. Damn. Children in horror. So I always kind of forget that Pan's Labyrinth is kind of an interlude between the Mexican indie stuff and the Hollywood super budget stuff, but uh, all the readings, I said this was very much a labor of love for him. Uh He made sure the money went to the right places, Mm -hmm. and you can see that. And it's a delightfully subversive, imaginative, the performances are great. It's a near-perfect film. I really think it is,
0: and there isn't a film Del Toro has made that I don't like slash love. To me, this is his... Perfect film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he still has a long career ahead of him. I, I think he's going to continue to make films. And so I'm excited to see what he comes up with. And, and maybe there'll be something that kind of rises to this. But to me, this just, this film encapsulates so much about what I love about him um, from his politics to his imagination to the design to the elements of storytelling and uh, emphasis on character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is another film that it can kind of go as surface or as deep as you want it to. Mm-hmm. There's a way to watch this film, and you can just kind of be like, "Wow what a what a magical, creepy adventure I've just been on." Or you can go into really strange, weird places with it and pull out different meanings, and it'll just continue to reveal itself to you. And uh, if you're listening to this podcast, um I'm going to assume you're one of those people who is just like, "Let's peel back those onion layers. Uh-huh. let's let's rip open that avocado. <laughs> let's do it. And I think this film has so much to say about politics. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, when you look back at this film as a 2006 film, as I was doing research for this episode, I was like, holy shit, the stuff they were dealing with in 1944, Spain feels real similar to what we're dealing with now. Who
1: does it ever? And one of the things I really love about this film is that insofar as the backdrop is this giant historical thing, it infuses power on the littlest agents Mm -hmm. in this story that everyone has the power of resistance and disobedience and that's something that's really uh, deep within us all and it's something that we can demonstrate and flex on a teeny tiny level and still be kind of the heroes uh, of our own stories and I think that's so beautiful and so needed right now it felt like really nice thing to rewatch at this moment and just be like it's gonna be okay. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, there is, there's an opportunity for what we are going through right now to be okay. Um, I do want to say to the five to ten people who are very upset with us when we talk about politics,
1: um, brace yourselves, maybe? Because <laughs> we're going to talk a bit about politics. I mean, yeah, I, I ran into this recently with the magazine too, where it 's just you know like toward the end of the year we we look back on the year, and also there was a lot of mail about about politics, but it 's like guys, if we 're going to talk about horror movies if we 're going to talk about things that are scaring us, we lived through a really fucking scary year, and you know i don 't think this is about politics, this is about our lived reality, which is politically charged right now. Sorry about it. Yeah. I- kind of wish it weren't so. And I I think, you know,
0: uh, to editorialize, if I may, uh, our world right now is on a precipice. We are at a breaking point and there's, you know, a break where it might be really healthy and new and we might really start to see the change that I think a lot of us want to start to see in the world. Or it might break the other way. Yeah. And it might be really scary and really terrible for a lot of people. So I think we all have to, you know, find our fawns, embrace our inner affilias and Mercedes and be badasses and champions and fight for what's right. Yeah. Even if it's just talking on a podcast. That's right. Eating chips and drinking wine. Good for us. Welcome to the resistance. <laughs> this is Pan's Labyrinth, <laughs> Guillermo del Toro's 2006 film.
2: in a dark time, when hope was bleak. There lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. There will be signs... that mark her return.
0: young Ophelia moves with her pregnant mother Carmen to a compound of Carmen's new husband, Captain Vidal, in 1944 Spain. Vidal, who is under the orders of General Franco, is hunting rebels in the nearby forest. Ophelia comes across a stick insect who visits her later that night and brings her to the fawn, who believes Ophelia may be the reincarnation of Princess Moana of the underworld, who many years ago visited the human realm and forgot who she was. To reclaim her status, Ophelia must complete a series of tasks to prove she is truly Moana, including getting a key from a giant toad under a dying fig tree, reclaiming a dagger from the frightening pale man, and spilling the blood of an innocent. While Ophelia navigates these tasks to different degrees of success, we learn the housekeeper Mercedes and Dr. Ferrero are helping the rebels. Vidal discovers Ferrero's treachery and kills him and tries to torture Mercedes into giving up information, but she attacks him and flees to the forest. Meanwhile, Ophelia's mother's health continues to decline until she dies in childbirth. As part of her final task, the fawn asks Ophelia to bring her baby brother to the center of the labyrinth on Vidal's property and spill just some of his blood. Ophelia refuses, the fawn leaves, Vidal arrives and shoots Ophelia, leaving her to die with his son in his arms. Vidal is confronted by Mercedes and the rebels as he exits the labyrinth. The rebels and Mercedes take the child and kill Vidal, saying that his son will never know his name. Ophelia's blood is the blood of an innocent, and by dying, she passes the final test and ascends to her rightful place as princess as Mercedes and the rebels mourn her passing.
1: Good job. I think what's truly unique about this film is that, you know, the fairy tale stuff is so Dark. It's whimsical. There are fairies. There are fawns. There's a labyrinth. There's a giant toad. Uh, There's stuff that you feel like would totally please a kid. But even the fantastical elements are scary, and they're dark. And to me, you know, they hearken back to the fact that fairy tales used to be dark and violent. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But Guillermo del Toro is—he's a childlike person. I feel like we're really lucky that he loves Toronto, so he comes to Toronto frequently to speak because he loves to nerd out he's, he's shot so many films here i'm not sure if he still has
0: a house here but he continues to film uh and shoot a lot of his films here which mm-hmm. is really cool I, it's definitely something i love to see like even when i saw shape of water and i was like oh it's a
1: Lakeshore shore diner oh yeah yeah it's cool i feel like anytime he is in town he's happy to pick up these speaking gigs and mm-hmm. he's happy to like we've we've gone to several of them i mm-hmm. think we went to one together not too long ago what was that one about
0: Oh gosh, I can't remember. I, re- I definitely remember seeing him. He was doing a series at TIFF yeah. here, um, where he was talking about the films of Hitchcock, and he talked about one of my favorite Hitchcock films, which is Notorious. And I, I went to that, and that was uh, it's a very like funny experience because it was a little bit awkward, but it was he was so smart and he could just talk about how the film is constructed, what it means, why it meant something to him. You know, a film I really had been very familiar with, I walked away with a whole new set of ideas about it. Yeah, And I I think that speaks to that passion of film and even in some of his films where I've been less in love with them I think he, maybe uh, I think he is
1: still in love with those ideas and I think that energy just comes through each and every time mm-hmm. I remember that Hitchcock thing and I remember all the pomp and circumstance of here he is Oscar winner Guillermo Del-, and he comes out in sweatpants and he's like can I sit? I'm fat. Can I just sit down? I'm going to sit. And it's so irreverent, so approachable. I think I actually saw him speak after— believe, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I got to see him and Issa Lopez talk about her film um tigers Only are Tigers Are <laughs> Tigers Are Not Afraid. Only Tigers Left Alive, I think is what I was about to say. But yes, that was that was the case. And you know they talked about Spanish cinema, they talked about Mexican cinema. They had such a lovely chat and I felt so blessed to be a fly on the wall in their conversation. And then there was his At Home with Monsters mm. thing. I think we talked about that more in our Mimic episode. Well, I mean, you interviewed Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I got to do this uh, press thing where I got to talk to him. And I remember the green room was, like, full of candy. And they were like, I hey, really likes the candy. Like, don't fucking touch the candy. <laughs> he would love if I ate some of his candy, I'm sure. But he's not the pale man here. I'm allowed to eat the candy. Did you eat the candy? Uh, No. Oh, I was really nervous. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway. Um, But yeah, he's lovely. I love how he uses children. I often get the sense from his movies that he gives children more credit than I'm used to seeing uh, in terms of children being able to perceive things that adults think they can't handle. They can handle it, and they can contextualize it through narratives the way we do, you know? Like, Ophelia's understanding of her events through these metaphors isn't totally foreign to me.
0: No, and I mean, I was, I would have been 21 when this film came out, Mm -hmm. and I I remember seeing it in theaters, and it continues to have a really big impact on me. But if I'd been a kid and I'd seen this I would have just been like, change my name to Ophelia, yeah. I'm that girl, this is amazing. It's really cool to see a film that imbues a young girl with all of these incredible characteristics, including bravery, but also being scared and being confused and sometimes making the wrong choice, but then ultimately making the most important choices correctly. Yeah. You know, you still don't see a lot of characters like that. No. And I think it really speaks to... Del Toro as a filmmaker, and how much he cares about every single piece of the film. Uh Um, And so that's why I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, he had to fight for funding and he really pulled everything together. Like you see, I really think every dollar that he had to fight for on screen. Yeah. It is a beautiful film. Uh It is a stunning film. The integration of practical effects with CGI, the care and attention to various historical elements that are kind of laced throughout so that you can just have that really brief scroll at the beginning that just tells you, you know, we'll get into the history of where Spain was at this time because Frankly, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. But going back and watching that um, opening crawl, that's just enough. That's all you need to know. Yeah. When I was 21 and seeing this film, I don't even know if I knew Spain had a civil war. Right. I probably fucking didn't. Uh-huh. But that clued something in for me, and I've since kind of seen it more and more, especially as I got into art and learned about Picasso's Guernica and, and got really into that story. And it stems from that moment of being like, this is a story that stems— from a historical fact. And as fantastic as it is, its roots are very, very real, not only to humanity, but to a very specific time and
1: place. Um, And as we're going to talk about in this episode, history repeats itself. That's going to be the depressing part of the episode. So should we get that out of the way? Should we rip off that Band-Aid? Let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. So there's a character in this film who's not on
0: screen. He's not present. He's mentioned a few times, but I don't want to say he's the most important character in this film or in this historical time period, but he might very well be. and He that is... certainly looms over it. He does. He does. It's um, Francisco Franco, if you guys didn't figure that out. And I'm going to talk you guys through a little bit of the history surrounding Franco. Um, we're also going to link in the show notes to a very good episode by the podcast, uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class. And they talk through Franco's rise to power, what happens after his death, and all of this kind of stuff in much more detail. So if you are interested in that, definitely go check that out. But for our purposes here, uh, Franco rose to power uh, as a military guy, eventually became a general in the Spanish army. He was known for being really good at suppressing uprisings in Spain, which became an increasing... Occurrence, mm-hmm. because there was a, a civil war from 1936 to 1939, and during that period, Franco was head of the Nationalists, who were attempting a military coup after the conservative parties lost a democratic election. Weird, a weird thing. December 2020 to be talking about, but here we are. And one of the interesting things that in my reading about Franco, I, I learned is that Franco kind of rose to this position. He was just kind of the guy that survived. He didn't get killed. He didn't get imprisoned. He was the one left over. Mm-hmm. And, and so, sometimes that's enough. Uh, yeah. If things are bad enough. And so the nationalists, to put it in a bit more context, um, they were supported by Hitler and Mussolini during the Civil War. They got food. They got weapons. They got support. They they got all the things they need to kind of help them overtake uh, the Republicans, who were the left-leaning side of Spain. Now, the nationalists were made up of mostly... The Catholics in power, landowners, businessmen, and the military, and on the other side, the Republicans, they were made up of workers, laborers, and the educated. Uh, The Civil War was incredibly bloody, Mm -hmm. and um, I saw an estimated—this is a really wide estimate—of between 190,000 to 500,000 people died. In that conflict. And Spain was actually neutral during World War II, but it would face repercussions due to kind of playing both sides mm-hmm. of the Axis and of the Allies during the war. And Hitler and Franco actually had a very famous meeting in 1940 where Hitler was trying to get Spain to be a member of the Axis along with them, um, Germany and Italy. And they met for I read in one place seven hours, in another place I read for 12 hours they met. And basically it was Hitler just trying to get to come on board, Mm -hmm. and Spain was still dealing with the ravages of their civil war, and so Franco was like, oh, no, I just want, like, this part of this land, and I want that part of France, and I want this part of France, and ultimately, Hitler had to walk away because he had just established the Vichy regime in France, and I didn't want to piss them off, but uh, it's been reported by, you know, several sources and throughout history that Hitler actually said he would rather have three to four teeth removed than meet with Franco again. How graphic. Yes. So yeah, Franco led the nationalists uh, starting, you know, for the Civil War. The Civil War ended in 1939. And then you're into the Franco years. And uh, he died in 1975. So
1: and that's a long haul. It's a 36 long, to 75. brutal,
0: horrifying existence for Spain. You know, mass executions. Executions didn't stop with the end of the Civil War. They continued. Anyone who was deemed to be a troublemaker was executed. Um, there are stories of in towns when people would be captured and about to be taken to be executed. That those prison buses would drive very slowly through town squares because they wanted to instill fear
1: Mm. in the people who would look down and be like, don't be like these people, they're going to go get killed. Terrifying. Fascism is terrifying. And I think, you know, uh, given what is going on in the present day, if I could apply these things to the present day, uh, you know, there's conflict. And then there's the time right after a period of intense conflict where I think everybody is just kind of like, can it be over? Can the bloodshed be over? And that's a really dangerous and tenuous time. Uh, I remember the first time I saw Pan's Labyrinth, I was like, oh, this is after the war? It seems very warlike. Well, after the war can seem very warlike when people don't accept the results of a war or maybe an election. And I know we've talked about this in our Patreon episodes about, like, the appeal of fascism. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, any thoughtful citizen tries to understand the other side. Politically, that, you know, everybody just kind of wants to live as best they can possibly live and everybody is concerned for their own welfare and stuff. And then you look at the other side and you're like, where are you coming from? I don't understand. However, after something like a civil war, you have to imagine that the idea of a centralized authority as a leader, it's scary, but it's also deliciously simple. It's also very tempting. It's really— It's comforting yeah, well, in a sick way. To make change, it's really difficult and expensive and time-consuming to elicit change in a proper democracy. Insofar so far as it's fair, it's also slow. It's also, you know, at worst, inefficient. There's so much legislation and red tape and backlog. But if one person is in charge, what they say goes. And if you like what that person is saying, if they're scratching a nationalist itch where you just want Spain to be great and great, great, great— You support that candidate in whatever vision of the nation they've promised to achieve. And so I I think that's very much the case. And I think we're going to talk—we're going to talk more about Vidal. I think he's a really interesting Mm -hmm. villain. He seems very simple— But I think there's a lot more to him, and this this film gives him credit. You know, at one point—do you remember when the doctor says to him, like, uh, blindly obeying orders is something only men like you can do? Do I remember that? I have a whole thing about it. Oh, do you? I do. We'll talk about it in a bit, but continue. I remember thinking that that line was powerful and gutting, but I'm not sure that it's entirely fair Mm. applied to Vidal. I don't think he's just— Following orders, and I think often when it comes to uh, fiction involving a Nazi storyline or any fascist regime or dictatorship, you look at the people who are just following orders and they're evil, and then you look at the people who have bought into the ideology at play, hook, line, and sinker. They're not following orders; they're doing what they think is right, and that's where I would put Vidal.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's it's a very complicated precipice that he's in because to have power in this world as a very well set up, is to be in control, to be happy, to have stability, to have so many things at your disposal, and to not have that is madness. Mm -hmm. Then you're living in the fucking forest fighting against an army. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, I think there is a fair amount of indoctrination that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think it's also interesting that in this
1: film— Vidal's just an evil fuck. He's a really evil fuck.
0: He's a real evil fuck. Like the line where the doctor's like, how do you know it's going to be a son? How Uh do you know you're going to have a son? And he's like... I just know. really like, scoffs at him.
1: Well, he wills it to be so. And his entire life, anything he has willed to be so, he has made happen. So Mm -hmm. why on earth would he leave anything up to something like nature or something else, right? Yeah. No, I,
0: I think there is a real temptation that when the autocrat or the fascist in power represents you and your being and your body and your ideology and your will, it's real easy to buy in. Oh, yeah. If you don't think about anyone else. And that's why I think the scene where they encounter the two men who are in the
1: woods hunting rabbits oh and they God. kill them quite brutally. And then they find the rabbits in that's the That's the moment, I think, when I was watching this film where I was like, oh, fuck, this is not a cakewalk. Anything can happen in this film. And this film is going to look at the ugliness dead on. Yeah. That was a turning point for me.
0: But the story of Franco doesn't end when he dies in 1975. It's been grappled with as recently as this year, and it, we're going to talk about how it's still going to be grappled with for quite a while, mm-hmm. because because when Franco died in 1975, uh, thankfully, there was a democratic government that rose to power. They couldn't kind of contain what was going on with, like, the authoritarianism and the fascism, so they were like, oh, okay, I guess we got a democratic government now. And Please note, there are people who dedicate their lives to Spanish history who are far smarter about all of the things I just said. So I uh, invite you to do more research on that. And I'm just paraphrasing for time. Yes. Because people dedicate their lives to this kind of research. I'm paraphrasing. Um, so the Spanish democratic government rose to power and there was something called the Spanish Amnesty Law of 1977 that was passed. And this was known as, quote, a pact pact of forgetting, end quote. And it was basically to move on from the decades of death and fear. It was like, okay, that shit happened over here. We're a new country. We're new Spain. Everything's fine now. Don't worry about it. And people didn't want to have to reckon with what had happened. Mm. And there was also something very similar that I encountered when I was working on my first book on New French Extremity, which comes from the writer Kristen Ross and her book, Fast Cars, Clean Bodies, which was all about France's will to forget after collaborating with the Nazis and their desperate turn to modernity after World War II and forgetting about the things that have happened in the past. So there was this pact to forget in the late 70s, and it kind of went on and on. And then in 2007, the year after Pan's Labyrinth came out, Spain passed a new act called the Historical Memory Act. And this act formally condemned the acts of Franco, his regime, and recognized victims on both sides of the Civil War. Now, there is a lot of criticism about this act. Some people who were like, we need to keep forgetting this happened because it's too fucking scary and weird for us to deal with, and a lot of us weren't alive during it, so why do we have to deal with it? Mm. And a lot of other people being like, uh, actually, this doesn't go far enough. We've got to have way more conversations about it. And then as recently as this year, 2020, the fall of this year, the Democratic Memory Act was passed in Spain. And this is a much more reaching version of the previous act. So this says that the state Spain, in this case, will take on legal responsibility for approximately 112,000 victims of Franco who are still in unmarked graves. They will look to identify them and bury them properly. They are looking to ban pro-Franco public uh, sentiments and also removed Franco's body from just even a couple years ago uh, from the Valley of the Fallen, which is this huge building monument in Spain. And. And they moved him to a much simpler grave site.
1: Took him down a notch, even in death.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My understanding is you could go see the body of Franco and be like, oh, Franco, what a weird historical figure you were. But there was also acts of vandalism and there's all this kind of weird shit going on. And, and as well, you know, you still have so many families across Spain born or living in Spain and have family members who they don't know what happened to. Mm-hmm. The unmarked graves, like, like the executions that were happening under Franco are I don't know if we in our, you know, Western Canadian mindsets can actually
1: grasp that. Yeah. I mean, I, there are the tearing down of statues. There are movements that we can't just look mm-hmm. away from horrible things that happen lest we repeat them. And I think any naive that would come like, well, we're not going to repeat them. We're not going. We're not going to have another Holocaust. Surely things won't get that bad. And yet here we are. And I think that also kind of speaks to you know something that is a major theme in this film, which is Vidal's preoccupation with his memory. Mm-hmm. That it's very important that he had his father's watch. His father tried to smash the watch so that his son would know what time he died. But Vidal. Repaired the watch. It's still smashed, but time still ticks. And so to me, that represented him kind of like continuing that lineage Mm -hmm. and his obsession with continuing that lineage, that obsession with that his son would know who he is and just kind of continue this reign of terror. And then in contrast, you have this underworld, this like really
0: interesting underworld that we only get to kind of touch every so often. And, you know, we don't know exactly how long Moana or Ophelia has been missing for. But the king has kept looking for her. This sense of time is very disparate between these two realities. Mm -hmm. And and I think the notion of time is something that's very fascistic. You know, you clock in and you clock out. Like, that's a very basic way of looking at our kind of capitalist society. And then this notion of this underworld reality where it's like pain and loss and loving someone, it doesn't end. It doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. It's still
1: part of you. And you're always going to look. You're always going to leave a fawn around. (laughs) hang out. And Del Toro has a fascination with Mm timepieces. He has a fascination with so many things and he's so transparent about it. Again, going back to that At Home with Monsters, even if you didn't get to check out that exhibit, uh, there's a book associated with the exhibit. There's his Cabinet of Curiosities book. And he's, you know, he loves bugs and he loves timepieces and he loves ghosts. And he, like, there's so much in here that you could tell spoke right to his soul. And it's part of why this film is so authentic. But going back to modern-day Spain, I read that there's a new populist party whose platform is made up of very Franco-leaning ideology called Vox. And um, there's a Vice documentary that uh, I normally wouldn't entertain, but fuck it. But I'll drop in the show notes, and you are going to see people marching and saluting for Franco, like wearing Francoist um, insignia and flags. And this is in the year 2020, and they don't call themselves fascists. They call themselves patriots. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Antifa movement rallying against it. And if that doesn't sound familiar, I don't know how to draw a closer parallel. But this is history, but it's also not history. It's ongoing history that is still raging. This was your idea to do this episode. It was. And was it because stuff was happening in 2020? No, no, I
0: actually, I hadn't. Watched this movie in a few years. Mm -hmm. And um, I I just wanted to revisit it. And I remember it giving me a sense of hope Mm -hmm. when I watched it. And I thought, what a good note to end this year on is some kind of hope. Yeah. And then when I watched it again, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I, I've I watched it twice for this episode, which is something I don't normally do, especially with a film I, I like to think I'm really familiar with. And because it hit me hard, mm-hmm. especially as I went into, you know, some more research into Spain about how we're cycling this all again. Yeah. We're so close, guys. We're so close to being in such a scary place. Yeah.
1: Anyway, you know, we retreat and we try to make meaning of all the suffering through narratives and through movies and through entertainment and through, indeed, fairy tales? Hmm.
0: I've been reading a few things for some other projects we're working on, and two terms I've encountered recently have popped into my head, and and they started ringing really true as I delved into this film. And the terms are a vital lie, and the other term is usable history or usable past. Okay. So. I don't know these terms. I'm going to tell you. Hit me. A vital lie Uh is a term from Henrik Ibsen, who is a very famous Norwegian playwright who I I spent spent a lot of time studying this man. He's super interesting, but he's Norwegian, so he's depressed as fuck. But he wrote seminal plays, like plays that changed theater. Super interesting. Um, But he had this term, a vital lie. And the vital lie is a lie told by individuals, families, communities, nations to uphold a specific narrative or self-deception. Daniel Goleman, who is a writer, wrote in the New York Times, I'll link this in the show notes, that a vital lie is a myth that stands in place of a disturbing reality. And that can be anything from dad's alcoholism actually isn't alcoholism, mm-hmm. don't worry about it, to uh, all those people being executed in the town square deserve it. Mm-hmm. it, it it's, and that's what is so scary about A Vital Lie is how readily we embrace it because the reality is so much scarier. So it's something we tell ourselves to go to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. I thought this film had a really beautiful moment of it when uh, the people are in line and they're handing out bread. Mm -hmm. and They're like, this is the bread of Franco's Spain. Every household has this bread. And it's like, it's a very small loaf of bread, mister. But every bite, you better be thanking Franco. You gotta thank it. And then A usable history or a usable past, um, this is something that a lot of historians use. I have a quote here from Eric Foner and his book Battles for Freedom, and he describes a usable past as a historical consciousness that can enable us to address the problems of society in an intelligent manner. Ultimately, a usable past is when we look back and we see these cycles repeating themselves and we can say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not again. And I think that Pan's Labyrinth is when a vital lie and a usable past converge. You have so many people, so many characters in this film dedicated to this lie of Franco's Spain, Mm -hmm. dedicated to upholding it. And then you've got us watching, you know, from a modern contemporary audience going, "Uh, fascist fuck is a fascist fuck. yeah. Fight! Rise! This is the bad guys. You don't want to be with the bad guys. I think this film does a really good job of kind of showing how people, as we were just talking about, fall into these patterns again and again and what it takes to rise up because Del Toro gives us heroes. He gives us really incredible heroes, but those heroes have to sacrifice so much. Mm-hmm do what is right and I think it sets us up for a really meaningful I I hope what we're going to have and what we are having a conversation about what it takes to be a hero what it takes to take control of a narrative like this because history is a fucking bitch and it's (laughs) history is written by the winners. Uh And it is only when we get far enough away that we can actually start
1: to disseminate what happened back then. Mm -hmm. And I love that honesty. I love that the heroes are not um, perfect, virtuous people, and they don't get out unscathed. No one gets out of these things unscathed. And I think that's dark, but it's also honest. And I find that honesty comforting, frankly. Yeah. So I think the usable past, the vital lie, there are stories that we tell ourselves that help us make sense of all these things and These stories get tweaked and changed over time to make sense to us, to warn us against the threats that are imminent and maybe disregard those that are outdated. And I'm talking about legends and myths and fairy tales. All these things have their roots in folklore, but the main difference between them has to do with this historical basis. Legends are usually based on real historical events or figures that are embellished over time. Myth is also based on real events, but it also reflects a belief system an ideology it it contains some supernatural fantastical element that reflects an understanding of the universe like greek mythology for example and fairy tales by contrast they generally lack this anchor in history but they contain a morality lesson in their narratives there's usually a clear line between good and evil and a lesson to be learned a parable with fantastical elements basically and i feel like pan's labyrinth it's very much a fairy tale, but it's also—it's it's got that historical rooting, and yet it doesn't, as we were just discussing, it doesn't seem too locked into that time. I think it's tragic and fucked up that fascism is in a moment in time that we can be like, this is about that, and that's way behind us. Yeah, look at those dummies. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's all around us even still. And fairy tales didn't used to be safe. Mm-mm. They used to be violent. They used to be dark. They were dangerous before they were sanitized. Like For example, and this is a well-known example, I think most people know that the Little Mermaid, as per the original Hans Christian Andersen version, she dies. She dies. Yeah. It's not a happy once upon a time ending. They, like, cut off her feet, don't they? Oh, Jesus, do they? Yeah. I didn't read it. But uh, the grim fairy tale Snow White gets vengeance on the wicked queen by humiliating her, by forcing her to dance in hot shoes at Snow White's wedding. There was no accidental falling off. So, like, so I think it's important. We look at fairy tales as this timeless thing, but they get adapted over and over to suit whatever context. Um, Charles Perrault was working out of 17th century France, and he incorporated ideology into his takes on Red Riding Hood, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella. Uh, I read a whole bunch of interesting shit about sexual innuendo Mm -hmm. in Cinderella's glass slipper as a metaphor for her virginity, where the princess looking for his perfect fit. Oh,
0: I was he going to stick his dick in her shoe?
1: What? There was this weird thing about the translation of the French term for a glass slipper could also mean a fur slipper. Oh, yeah. I've read about that. <gasps> no, I have. First slipper is a great euphemism for, you know what? Whoa. I like it. Whoa. And then Hot. the Brothers Grimm, over a century later in Germany, had their takes on these stories that also reflected the time. And due to war and disease, there was a lot of death in these narratives. There was a lot of mixed families and step-parents. Mm. And that's where I came from. And then we come to Walt Disney in the 20th century, who did the same thing, but with a decidedly New World American twist. He took these royalty-free fairy tales in the public domain and motherfucker copyrighted them. He copyrighted his adaptations. So before, Snow White belonged to... Anyone. Now it's the intellectual property of a humongous media and entertainment conglomerate, and that's only gotten stronger and stronger. And I found a really great article about um, Walt Disney and the birth of the American fairy tale by Tracy Mollett. It was a JSTOR article, but it was downloadable, and I thought it was really interesting was just about Snow White being Walt Disney's first feature and how much ideology was in that, how much uh, American dream was in toiling away at these mines. It was Really, really interesting. And, you know, the 1920s were obviously a time of great abundance. This is when the American dream really took a foothold. And then when the Great Depression hit, everybody went to the movies seeking this escapism. But it's not pure escapism because that ideology is still in there. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, rumor readers, there's no apolitical art. Sorry. God, could you imagine if
0: we edited this down to, like, an apolitical podcast? It'd be like each episode would be like 10
1: minutes. I don't understand why people think politics is like a special interest subject that's somehow external to entertainment or literature or anything else. It's like... Culture is in everything. Politics is in everything. Yeah. And it's wonderful. It's not something we should rail against.
0: If if we're—I think the more informed we are, the better we're prepared to deal with shit. Yeah. It's when you don't know shit that things get really bad. Agreed. So, Andrea, I, I know you've been in Toronto for several years now. Do you remember the world's biggest bookstore here in Toronto? Yes. Okay, great. Yes, I do. Um, because that bookstore was huge, and it was in downtown Toronto, and it, it was, was around. Fucking
1: huge. It was huge. And it wasn't the prettiest bookstore. It wasn't—it it was, was just big. big. It was like a warehouse. like yeah. Which is what, like, made it earn that name. Like, yes. you felt overwhelmed. And you could just lose yourself for the hours there. So, mm-hmm.
0: uh, and having grown up in Toronto, like, if my parents and I went to a movie downtown, we would go to the world's biggest bookstore before or after, and you could spend an hour there like like the three of us would just disperse, oh, that's and we so just cute. And I'd be like, "Buy me these books," and they'd be like, be like "Okay, you get one." Oh <laughs> and my be god! Like, um, but no, you, you'd wind up with like the most incredible things. So, um, where this story is going is that the world's biggest bookstore in Toronto, Ontario, is no longer with us. It went out of business. Oh, I want to say like six years ago, yeah. and they had a huge going out of business sale. Okay. Uh, huge one. And I was making... The world's biggest going out of business. Yeah, the world's biggest going out of business. And I was not making great money, but I had a credit card. And so I went, I waited in a lineup. Oh, shit. I I went in there and I didn't actually, I didn't spend too, too much because the discounts were so good. But I found this book and it is a book I may have actually previously referenced uh, over the eight years we've been doing this, um, I know I've returned to it for a lot of things, but it's this book called The Irresistible Fairy Tale. By Jack Sipes. And so I'm kind of pulling a little bit from that book and a bit from Jack Sipes' uh, newer piece, which is called Speaking the Truth with Folk and Fairy Tales, which he published in summer 2019. Mm -hmm. He is a really interesting writer. He has a lot of analyses and history that he employs throughout um, folk and fairy tales, especially with contemporary politics. So for Zipes, he believes that we must make history usable to account for unresolved issues of the past, uh, to create more understanding, to create more inclusivity. And I kind of take that as as we move away from those who have controlled narratives, i.e. those who, you know, win the battles, write the history books that kind of jam, mm-hmm. we open ourselves up to a greater understanding of stories and lives. So while Franco won the Civil War and he was in power for decades afterwards, we're now able to disseminate all of the resistance, all of the disobedience that happened around it. Yeah. And for Zipes, because of our expectations on narratives and characters within them, we can see the possibilities for fighting against the corrupt and the unjust. He really sees fairy tales and folklores in their purest terms, like folk fairy tales before they get to Disney Mm -hmm. and what I also like about Zipes is he does recognize kind of repeatedly throughout his writing that a lot of it it can be very you know reductive in like she gets married she does this but he kind of he he lives a bit more in the like you know the emperor's new clothes Mm. or you know Hansel and Gretel I think he gets a bit more out of those so you know he really sees that these stories they combine voices and characters from different classes um, and that sees that ethical values support communities rather than the individual which is something we touched on back in our hereditary pihacket episode yeah. um, community over the individual and that in order for these stories to have survived, for as long as they have, there has to be a cooperation mm. of communities, generations passing on these stories, sharing them. Because as Walt Disney, before he got his hands on them, you know, they were just published. Yeah. They were changed and they were augmented for each country, each nation, each region they were in mm-hmm. to make them more adaptable to those situations. So as you sip through the history of them, they become more pertinent to who you are. And what I think is so interesting about Pan's Labyrinth and what becomes very clear as you read interviews with Del Toro or, you know, do any research on the film, is he's just a very well-read, interested person. He's very interested in a lot of things, and he cares about a lot of things, and as I heard him describe, I think in one of the makings of of Pan's Labyrinth is, and maybe in in his book, The Cabinet of Curiosity, is that these things would kind of just come to him in dreams. So it's like you read, watch, you intake all this stuff, and then it just kind of sips through your head and these moments come to you in dreams. Then you're like, oh, that's how my brain shifted through it. So I think this fairy tale is very much a del Toro creation that is indebted to histories. And I mean, histories in multiples. And I think that's speaks to the power of this film is, is there isn't a single history. Mm-hmm. And that's what people like Franco wanted. They wanted, I was powerful, I was in control, everyone got bread, la-di-da. Yeah. And that's not the case. And and so I think there's a kind of beautiful metaphor to the way Del Toro just intook all of this interest and in information and it just kind of flowed into something very singular yeah. that has its roots in the past and in contemporary. And um, I think it's very... Very special and and there 's a reason why we retell these stories because we have to see ourselves as heroes because oftentimes we 're made to feel the weakest.
1: Mm-hmm
0: when you're standing up for what's right.
1: That's right, but we've also we've also come to redefine the hero, haven't we? Ooh. We've redefined the hero, we've redefined the villain, and I think it's been something really interesting in the past couple of years is the reassessment of the villain. You know, uh, Maleficent, well, we loved Maleficent. Isn't she interesting? Maybe she has these motivations, maybe she has some ulterior motives. Uh, I remember when that Wicked musical hit was perhaps my first exposure to, like, this anti-hero, and, well, let's hear her side of the story, and it's a tremendous feminist and empowering piece of work. And I would recommend it to anyone. I think it's really interesting, the idea of people being preoccupied with how they'll be remembered and where they'll be located in history. And Mm. I've certainly thought of that a lot this past year, because we're going to be talking about 2020 for a long time, you know, and it's not quite the same as 9-11. You know, we talk about post 9-11 and pre 9-11. And like, that was a moment This has been a year of history-making and everything that we've done. And you and I have been part of this. And you too, listener. Like, all the streaming, all the discourse on Twitter, that is going to be studied. And we are all part of that. You don't need to be a big political figure to contribute to the history that we're writing right now. We are living in a really... Interesting, intense moment, and so I don't know. It's kind of a tangent, but I urge you to see it that way. You know, we're going to be talking about this moment forever, and we're here now, and we're making sense of it as we go along. And you know, the academics are going to look back and blather on. Alex and I are going to be part of that. We're going to say, oh, "Well, in that age, this and this happened, and that's how we learned how to this and that."
0: Yeah, I mean, even like how we've all kind of went back and rewatched Steven Soderbergh's *Contagion*.
1: *Contagion* got a new shelf life. Um, have you seen that *Cobra*? pie? No, I haven't. Fucking Karate Kid was like the most clear example of American pie, good and evil. And it's turning that on its head. And um, it's significant. I'm not quite sure what it means, but uh, I feel like it's a postmodern acknowledgement that good and evil, like there there are shades and gradients and there is good and there is evil, but they don't have to be caricatures of one side or the other. And I think this film, you know, insofar as it's from 2006, I think that's part of its enduring appeal. Well,
0: and I think some of the things that del Toro has clearly taken from our kind of collective unconscious of understanding what certain things mean, if even if we don't ourselves know them, and, and I take this as the fawn. The fawn! The fawn! So talk about the fucking hey. fawn! <laughs> Let me give you my little summary of what the fawn means. What's interesting is, in the Spanish translation of the title... It references the fawn. However, in the English translation, it's Pan's Labyrinth. Correct. Um, Now, Del Toro has been, um, you know, very open with—he was very much involved in the translation process. And, uh, you know, as someone who works in government agency, frankly, I'll share that with you all. Uh, So I have to think about a lot of English Canada, but then there's also French Canada. Mm -hmm. And those translations are really important.
1: And the artistry—like, it truly is an art. Translation is— There's so much nuance in language. You can't just tit for tat a word and it's translation. So
0: Pan is a god. Yes. But Pan is also kind of a faun, and there are fauns and satyrs which exist within mythology, Greek, and Roman theater. I fucking wrote some papers on those guys. Did you? Yeah. Okay, okay. What do you think I, like, paid $40,000 for? Just to write <laughs> papers people. about good people, okay? And Now I'm here. Uh, okay, but Pan was a god, is a god. Mm-hmm. Who knows? He was uh, generally known for being a god of the natural world. He was very associated with the woodlands. I saw somewhere that Pan is also the god of theatrical
1: criticism, which I thought was great. Oh, so he's a villain. He's a demon. <laughs> he's a devil. He has opinions. I thought Pan, fauns and Satyrs were tricksters. They can be. But ultimately, and this comes from the Romans. Of course. As they do. It's okay, you can say it in front of me. You don't want to slag the Romans in front of the Italian. I get it. I know. I just, you know. But the Romans believed that fauns or satyrs
0: were capable of guiding humans in need. Okay. And that's where, to me, this fawn pan lies because you don't quite know if he's good or if he's evil and he's kind of fucking with her and to me it's ultimately all a test and then when you see him at the end when she ascends to being Princess Moana he's a bit like I, I... Definitely take it as he was like, I was fucking with it. you. You passed. Your totes her. Yeah, Welcome yeah. home. Mm-hmm. I definitely get that. And of course, Pan or the Fawn is portrayed by Doug Jones, who's, who also plays the Pale Man, who we'll talk about shortly. But um, the Fawn is is a creature of myth. Pan is the god of myth, and it is a strange figure that I definitely take it as someone that presents opportunities.
1: Okay, like I said, I always thought that fauns were tricksters and known for being duplicitous. Like I, I had always kind of cast them as the the court jester, but all my research pointed to this lecherous sexuality that, <laughs> that I was blithely oblivious to, just like this masturbating god, like always being depicted with raging erections. Like <laughs> I can show you the art. I found, and it was all pretty traumatizing to me because I had all these memories of Mr. Tumness.
0: Yes, you know, yeah. and in and there's a lot of line Witch, in the wardrobe in this film. There is,
1: yeah. yeah, where where the pan of Greek mythology was this helpful figure. Maybe you didn't always trust him because he was just kind of maybe morally a bit flippy floppy he wasn't good he wasn't evil and definitely that comes through in this film where he is quite terrifying he is a huge imposing figure and indeed if you have any of Guillermo del Toro's books you know how much care went into uh, the design of these creatures that he would look you know uh, warm when he wanted to and threatening at other times and traditionally The fawn
0: or pan is like kind of half man, half goat. And this is like half goat, half. And I think del Toro has described him as like tree, land, moss. Yes. He's part of the earth. And I think it was such a smart choice because it continues to help separate this figure of the fawn different from the reality. If we choose to believe that Vidal and Franco and everything is the reality, then this is something much older. And when I was rereading the Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, and they're talking about his notebooks, his really famous notebooks, Mm -hmm. he was working on Hellboy 2 at the same time, which I actually just happened to watch by happenstance a few months ago. And Hellboy 2, which is another film of del Toro's I really love, shares so many similar themes of like an old world, an unmarked world, you know, kind of trying to come to power again, and it kind of takes a different slant on it. So I think it's interesting that clearly there is a notion of what are we doing to the environment
3: Mm. at this
0: time, what is kind of coming back to haunt us, what is coming back to claim us. Right. And I think it's interesting that Ophelia or Moana is... Being drawn back somewhere much older.
1: Yeah. Where she's going to be put in status. Yes. Something very natural, something very all-encompassing. And indeed, like, the, the term pan as a prefix just yeah. refers to all and everything.
0: To me, I think the figure of the trickster is so interesting because they're seen as, like, they want to fuck with things, but they ultimately tend to reveal truth. Yes. And in with fucking with Ophelia
1: it reveals that she truly is Moabah. That's right. And she saw him for what he was, so to speak. Like, I'm not just going to blindly obey your orders. Um, You're guiding me. And, like, when he scolds her, I remember being so scared Mm -hmm. for her that, oh my god, you've made him mad and he's fucking mad and he's fucking scary and we don't trust. She never trusted him. She doesn't trust anybody. She trusts her instincts and she trusts herself. And I really appreciated that lack of binary in these characters. Now, I also discovered that Guillermo was so unhappy with the translated English subtitles in The Devil's Backbone that he wrote all the subtitles for Pan's Labyrinth. And yet, as you say, the translation of the title is El Labyrintho del Fauno. But Pan's Labyrinth, it was given that moniker in English, German, and French titles. Mm. And so I have to wonder if he fought against the titling as Pan's Labyrinth Mm. because it cast this faun as a particular figure, an established figure with an established mythology. And so I find it kind of strange that that he would be able to rewrite all the subtitles, and in the subtitles he's never referred to as Pan in no. the film. Yeah, yeah. However, it's in the title. I wonder if he hates that. I don't know. And it's it's funny to me because
0: while the Fawn and, and we'll talk about the Pale Man shortly are so iconic in this film, it really is Ophelia's story. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where I actually had two friends. Um, have since had a kid and if they had a girl they eventually had a son um but if they had had a girl they were going to name her ophelia with the spelling like o-f-e-l-i-a um because they were like any kid we have we want to be like strong like she is." is see that. She's iconic. She's iconic. And I also think it's important to note, because I had to make this delineation for myself, but well, what is a labyrinth? Mm-hmm. Is it David Bowie playing with his balls? Yes, it is. Is it also another definition? Yes, it is. Great. <laughs> um, so I got this from the rather hilariously titled National Building Museum. Um, I, if I said, Andrea, we're going to the
1: National Building Museum. I'd say, are there going to be erections? And then it would be funny. <laughs> Call it the Erection Museum. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the National Building Museum is in
0: Washington, D.C., as one might imagine, and they have this definition. A labyrinth has a winding, curved passage, a one-way path from the outside to the center. Walking through one, you will change direction but not feel lost or confused. It takes a long time to get to the middle, uh, but that is to encourage a contemplative thought or idea. Now, a maze is more considered a puzzle with many dead ends. Mm -hmm. So I think the labyrinth thing is kind of fitting because Ophelia almost seems to hit dead ends. She's also just kind of having to guide her own path, like when she quote unquote fails Certain tasks, Mm -hmm. she's also having to navigate the real world. Again, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, real world. So I really like that definition of there's no dead ends. You're just on a weird, long, winding path.
1: Yeah, I feel like a maze is a puzzle that you want to solve, whereas a labyrinth tends to be kind of a more journey oriented thing. It's not quite this direction or that direction. There's kind of other hurdles. Yeah. Um, So I think that definition. And I think you know I
0: should mention, Andrea and I went through a corn maze back in October. And uh, that stopped being fun after 45 minutes. You know,
1: it was maybe my first time standing upright for longer than 20 minutes. So after a while, I was just kind of like winded from strolling on a lovely fall day. It was a little bit labyrinthine. I'm not going to lie. So I would
0: love to dig into something that for myself, I was calling mirror scenes. Yeah. Or narratives. That's narrative. Yeah. Because as I was re-watching it, I was like— oh, my God, the quote-unquote reality is mirroring the fantasy. It's almost like a writer-director imagined it thusly. Uh Um, So I thought it would be a good way to actually break down some of the structure of this film because there are so many interesting characters and scenes and settings that are involved. Uh So early on in the film, after Ophelia and Carmen, her mother, get to the kind of compound, there is a scene of the captain stockpiling the supplies in the kind of outhouse thing uh-huh. and uh, giving me like the Mercedes key thing. The and, big key. There's yeah. only one key. And, um, and it's mine. I'm it's mine. It, yes. And I know where it is. Uh-huh. And I know who's in control of uh-huh. it. And then to me, that mirrored obviously Ophelia's first task, which is to retrieve the key from the kind of toad frog at yeah. the bottom of the dead fig tree. And Ophelia actually
1: says to the toad, you grow fat While the tree dies. Yeah. You're hoarding and stockpiling all the supplies while the country that you're supposed to serve is starving. Intentionally so. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, it's just a nice kind of subliminal
0: moment. And as Ophelia retrieves the key, she gets kind of vomited and muddied upon. So there's a very kind of viscous quality to this task that she has to survive and come out of. Mm -hmm. And then she is unable to attend the next kind of like dinner party scene the dinner party scene. Yeah. So Captain Vidal is talking about uh, this dinner party. Oh, look at this dinner party. So many people in my dinner party, dinner party, dinner party. And Carmen is like, oh my god, look at this amazing dress I got you. And Carmen, who's Ophelia's mother, is seemingly a very kind woman. It's actually heartbreaking to me when she talks about to Ophelia, like, call him your father. It's just a word. It's just a word. And like, if we don't have our words, if we don't have our indicator, like, what do we have? And And it's so frightening how much she just wanted it to work and to keep her and her child safe. But in doing so, I think caused
1: other harms. That's right. She's such a fascinating character in that I feel like I can see myself in her and that at a certain point, it's just like, play the game, stay alive. I just want to provide for my people. And if it means, yeah, okay, father, it's just a word. Yeah. And I have said those just words and I have been pleasant with people I've been uncomfortable with and like I think a lot of people can kind of speak to that reality I think it's really interesting that she kind of represents the traditional fairy tale of the princess and mm-hmm. she's like he can be your father and we can live very well and put on this dress and be pretty because what is a princess if not pretty and when Ophelia rejects that she upsets her mother and I found that so crushing because I feel like that's a little part of the labyrinth that didn't get its own cutscene and its own something. But again, that was part of her journey. Yeah. Particularly painfully when she lost her mother, that she was like, you know, the last meaningful interaction we had.
0: Oh, well, that's the part of the movie where I just start bawling when she comes back, <laughs> and, and then Carmen is like the queen at the end. So and disappointed. I'm- But then Carmen is the queen at the end, and she's with, like, this nice old man, Mm -hmm. and I just start bawling my eyes out. However, the dinner party. So the captain has this elaborate dinner party. He has confined Carmen to a wheelchair, and you have this very elaborate kind of dinner party. So we've just seen that there are rations happening. Everyone's going to get their food in certain orders, all of that stuff. And you have the father, a priest of the Catholic Church, who is talking about ration cards, and the priest is saying... If they meaning human beings who are accepting these ration cards Mm -hmm. are careful, it should be plenty. And as he is saying this, he is shoveling food from like a platter that is being passed onto his plate, Mm -hmm. not even thinking about it, just like dumping it on his plate. And then to me, of course, that ties to Ophelia's second task, which is perhaps one of the most iconic scenes in the movie, which involves a figure called the Pale Man. And unfortunately, this is an audio podcast, so you cannot see the eye that Andrew. Andrea has drawn on her hand. I did that. Ah! It yeah, looks creepy. I'm
1: spooky. I don't have my nails on. This is like the <laughs> pandemic version of me being theatrical. <laughs> Now, the Pale Man is—I think the accepted explanation slash analysis for this scene is that he is representing the faceless institution of the church, the child-devouring institution of the church, only able to see through his own stigmata. However, I found an old tweet— from Guillermo del Toro Uh in 2017. Uh I saw it in 2017, and I retweeted it. And recently, Twitter, like, reminded me. It's like, remember this retweet in 2017? And I was like, motherfucking evergreen, and I retweeted it again because it's so good. This is the tweet, so it's coming from GDT. The pale man represents all institutional evil feeding on the helpless. It's not accidental that he is A, pale, and B, a man. He's thriving now. In 2017, Friends and Neighbors wasn't all that long ago, and there is always going to be a faceless institution that is sucking our bones dry. And also,
0: it looks so much like Mitch McConnell. <laughs> oh, God. <It> really does. <laughs> like... <laughs> Again, you five to ten people who don't like it when we talk about politics. Holy fucking shit.
1: Someone would be yelling at me if I didn't say it It looks like fucking Mitch McConnell. That is an— purely empirical observation. There is no politics in that statement. Now, this pale man figure, I mean, loose skin, to me, denotes a being with insatiable appetite. Mm. Like somebody who has a lust for consumption but is never satisfied. And clearly, in this storyline, it's implied that eating at this table ingratiates you to him. Yes. Whether it's Vidal's table, if you're in the inner elite, and yes, you're, you know, you're one of the people and you're going to get your ration cards. Everybody's going to get one, but I'm going to stuff My fucking face and enjoy the abundance of being your friend. There's that kind of like elitism. It's deep hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. That's right. And then when the rebels hijack that food shipment, they don't take the food. I love the use of food as symbolism, as you know, it's a basic human resource, but it's also deeply symbolic in terms of where it came from, how it was acquired, and whose table you eat at.
0: Yeah, no, the the notion of being invited to a table, that is something Andrea and I have talked about for years. You know, we were not offered any seat at any table, so we built our own table. And it's something I see more and more people just embracing. No one's invited to Mitch McConnell's table unless he is white and for a very certain kind of politic. Mm -hmm. And so I see more and more people, past, present, future, just taking up a lot of ownership of the kind of conversations we're having right now. Mm -hmm. And it's really exciting and refreshing. And it happens in contrast to what the establishment is trying to do and it comes out of necessity
1: but no one has to take this sitting down. Nope. So myths of child eaters abound in conservative figures who fear being usurped by the next generation and I'm talking about Kronos of Greek mythology devouring his child that very famous Goya painting I know you know that one mm-hmm. uh, and it's such a great metaphor me for some fascism. Uh, controlling the narrative ensuring the continuous undisrupted line of authority it's something that Vidal all believes very strongly in. And I was researching the Pale Man. I found a bunch of that discourse around the Pale Man, but I also found that there is a Japanese yokai or spirit called the Tenome. Mm -hmm. And I did a bit of digging on this figure. He appears illustrated in a couple of old Japanese manuscripts without, without a whole lot of explanation as to why his eyes are in his hands. There's one collection of kaidan, which is ghost stories from 1677 that feature the tenome as a monster that can suck the bones of the human body, leaving a pile of skin. So again, that kind of conjures the image of this, like, loose, flappy guy. So the origin story is that there was a folk tale wherein a blind man was attacked and robbed and with his dying breath he wished that he had eyes that worked to see the faces of his assailants and he was like I wish I had eyes that worked even if they were in the palms of my hands and his bitterness at his death and like we talked about yokai like this and we talked about the ring if you're bitter enough about something in death in Japan you will turn into a yokai and so he turned into one with eyes in his palms as he wished. So Guillermo I think he is a, a student of literature and culture and fucking everything. I don't see much meaningful ties back to the tenome uh, short of the physicality, which is like terrifying and chilling. But one thing I did see online that I wanted to ask you about Mm. is there were people speculating that the dual casting of Doug Jones, like, can we construe this as a dual role for him? Can we construe this as, is he the fawn in another form?
0: I think that's a really interesting take on it. My thinking is, is that I don't think they're the same character or the same spirit or whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. because to make them the same essence, spirit, whatever, is to negate the power of the pale man.
1: The peril, the danger. Yeah, Yeah.
0: And that it's a very real, very omnipresent thing that exists Mm -hmm. in our life and in many people's lives in the past and I'm sure in the future. And the fawn is, you know, he's one of those guys who's like, to be devil's advocate And Doug Jones is just a great actor, and when you find a great actor like Doug Jones, you use him
1: for everything. He is a fantastic physical actor. He is very um, scrawny and sinewy, and he is very gifted at using his body to portray what words cannot and what (sighs) expressions cannot. And I feel like that boils down to it. And just because the Pale Man isn't in the same room as Pan makes him fucking pokaroo. Ontario reference for all y'all. I Researching I this movie, I found so many YouTube videos that was like Pan's Labyrinth explained. I have a real gripe with some of those videos, man. And I almost feel like this question is kind of going in that direction, that it's the I, same actor. What does that my, mean?
0: I actually watched none of those for this episode. I purposefully stayed away. I did not Google Pan's Labyrinth other than to double check some credits because I think those videos, I mean, if you find them useful and informative to your understanding, I think that's great. But in terms of me trying to come at it as a human being, it felt very reductive.
1: It is reductive, but I find it fascinating that there seems to be an appetite to solve these movies as if there is one answer. And I feel like this entire podcast is the antithesis to that. There's no answer. There's a discussion. There's a conversation. And there's a conversation that I have with you that we're sharing with others and others are having within each other. And also within that conversation was, are Ophelia's trials Really happening? Oh, fuck that fucking argument! Thank you. Fuck. Okay. okay, I'm banging on a table, and I
0: know this sucks for editing. Oh, fuck that fucking argument. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if it's all if it's all in her head, then just then why? Can oh, you imagine
1: anything throwing out all of that just because it's all in her head? Like I don't know why people watch movies if they're looking for that kind of read. No, the fawn is real. She is
0: Princess <laughs> Moana. It's all fucking real. That's it. No. No, I
1: reject I reject that reading. It's I reject bullshit. that too. Fuck your Fight Club reading. It's real enough in its consequences and just like that fucking mandrake root you know, there were people hinging entire arguments on, well, when they burned it, she got sicker. Is it a coincidence? Well, actually, we'll actually fuck you. How about that? It can be both. It can be all yeah, of that. And we're not here to explain the film or rationalize the film. We're just we're just pulling out that which is meaningful to us and what made us enjoy it. Okay, yeah. So please take
0: Andrea's very thoughtful response to that and not me yelling about <laughs> Um, Look, it's annoying. Brain. It's totally infuriating. I mean, if, if you're gonna say, "Oh, it was an millionaire hand, and she just fucking die, <laughs> like then, then why don't you just go lay in your grave right now and wait for death to come? Uh, I would like to talk about. A moment that we touched on earlier. And to me, it's a very significant moment. And it's the moment between uh, the doctor, Ferreo, and Captain Vidal. Yes. As uh, they've captured the rebel with the stutter and, mm-hmm. and they've gotten him to talk to a certain degree.
1: And of course they did. When I was watching that scene, I was like, I'll tell you anything, motherfucker. Just watching this, I will tell you anything.
0: I know. And, and so, Ferreo, uh, as he's helping the rebels, as we've been told previously in the film, he he just kind of very humanely um, euthanizes, him. euthanizes him yeah. so he doesn't feel anything and he can just pass on, which is what the rebel wants. Of and Captain Vidal says to him, you could have obeyed me. It would have been better for you. And for Rayo says to obey just like that for the sake of obeying without questioning. That's something only people
1: like you could do. That line hits like a fucking hammer. It's beautiful.
0: And that, to me, spoke directly to when the fawn is like, just a little prick. We're just going to take some of his blood. Mm. Don't worry about that. When Ophelia is in the midst of the labyrinth with her baby brother, and she's thinking that she and her baby brother will ascend to something else, and she can take him with her. Mm-hmm. Um, because she's, you know, and this is where Ophelia is probably a better person than me, because I'd be like, little stupid baby, you you killed just killed my quick- mom. <laughs> God damn it! And she's like, "No, I need to take my brother with me." And she's like, "No, no, nothing no. happens to him."
1: Yeah, and this is after their spat. She's already on thin ice. She's yeah. already on Fawn probation, and the Fawn just says, "Okay, fuck you, bye." And Vidal
0: shows up and almost immediately shoots her in the gut too. In the gut, it's like, die slow, bitch. And like, this really? is where it's like Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> you know, I feel like it could be in the back of a car. Everything's gonna be okay. Mm. Everything's gonna be okay. <laughs> but
1: then things somehow miraculously are like the way this movie wraps up is just like it's gonna be okay the right people are gonna be remembered for the right reasons and i think it's weird and disorienting to step outside of a narrative and see it for the history that it's creating but that's what happens well, and i think i think that goes to speak to frankly
0: as cheesy as this sounds the power of film because i didn't know fuck all about Franco's Spain, but I knew about people fighting against him and the sacrifices they made because of this film. Mm -hmm. That is big. That is huge. And I continue to kind of feel and have that resonate with me, you know, as I continue on in my life. And I even feel like there's such a dichotomy between Mercedes and Ophelia in this film. You know, Ophelia is kind of on this very fairy tale esque journey that comes to a very sudden end in reality and that allows her to pass through to her kind of final realization of being the princess and you know being able to reign and have power and mercedes is doing that as well in in a very large degree and she's a very quiet character in this film but a very important character mm-hmm. within the film and she is just like the sun will never know your name Mm -hmm. And when you think about this film, and it's about the voices and the things that we don't know about. It's like I went through the research. I I went through shit to to summarize for this episode. It wasn't like this nice rebel village with this nice housekeeper (laughs) uh, stood up against it and— fought back. No, but I have that sense and that feeling because of this film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked how
1: Mercedes' narrative kind of paralleled Ophelia's. Ophelia's a child. Yeah. You know, she's a pawn in all this. She's thrust into these circumstances that she can't control, whereas Mercedes has a lot more agency. The risk is greater. The peril is real. And so the idea that Mercedes survived whereas Ophelia was punished is so tragic, but it makes it so, so poignant. But But let's let's talk about the fuck out of Vidal. She sure quit. did. And I, I was scared for her when I yeah. was like, this guy is going to torture the shit out of you and you are going to sell out your brother. And I feel unsafe in this film that that could happen and that could be what happened next. <laughs> Holy fuck, what a ride. But disobedience is a major theme in this film, and it's, I think, where I kind of want to wrap up this discussion. So Princess Moana's story is unique in that not only does she reject the traditional princess shit of a pretty dress, required virtue is disobedience. Mm. It's not a convenient virtue, it's not the virtue by which she came across other virtues that was the entire point. That was the gist. And I saw readings of the film that emphasized her sacrifice. But again, I don't truly accept that because I feel like that's obviously way more in line with what we expect of women, that she laid down her life for her brother. That's not exactly what happened. She was shot for her disobedience, and that is what unlocked the portal. But disobedience is necessary to society. People tend to think of a utopian society as something where there's no crime or no deviance or no disobedience, but crime is necessary and it can even be a good thing. And I feel like I've talked about this in the podcast before about structural functionalism. But deviance is found in every society, which means that it serves a function. And there's a theorist by the name of Merton. And his theory of deviance is that the amount of deviance in a society depends on whether or not that society has provided sufficient means to achieve culturally defined goals. So for an example, here in the west, the culturally defined goal is financial success, the American dream, the white picket fence, the 2.5 children, whatever. If American society does not allow for people to achieve those goals, through the prescribed means, which is to say, you know, the American dream will be like, yeah, yeah, go to school, pay your taxes, get married, do everything right, and you will be wealthy. If you buy into that, then you're going to toil away out of it and you (laughs) may or may not get it. However, when people don't have access to, say, school— Or say good jobs, or even bad jobs that could allow the upward mobility for a good job, they react in one of several ways. And one of those ways is innovation. Innovation is keeping the goal in mind and finding other ways to get it. And this was kind of Merton being kind. You know, he could have called that deviance, but he called it innovation. Because I'm talking about stealing and fraud. An organized crime, etc. And so when you talk about us being invited to the big kids table, we innovated. <laughs> we worked around it. We made our own big kids table. And the other reactions toward this could be ritualism, which is where you give up on the goal. But you keep following the rules for rules sake and retreatism where you reject the goals and the means. And Mm. you're just like, fuck you. I'm deleting Facebook. I'm living off the grid. (laughs) I don't care about wealth. I don't care about social media. I don't care about any of this shit. I'm coming up with new goals and new means to achieve them. And in this view, a healthy society would look at the crime rates and say, wow, there sure is a lot of crime in this area surrounding wealth, maybe we should be providing more accessible means to achieving these goals. But if the people who make the rules prefer to keep things as they are, they make laws to punish those innovators Mm. while rewarding others. And this is the line between like the petty thieves and the organized crime and corporate crime. They're all stealing, but only one of them is illegal. And it's largely accepted. So I feel like in the context of Pan's Labyrinth, where the dust has barely settled after the civil war the goals and the means are still being established and they're being enforced brutally by Vidal and I feel like the goal the lofty goal over all this movie is peace but the means to that peace is relinquishing all your rights to a dictator a monster and we see this play on early in the scene with Vidal and those two men in the woods. They're punished brutally for going outside the prescribed means of getting their food. Yeah. But I feel like ultimately the moral of this fairy tale is to be on guard for passive conformity Mm -hmm. in times of turmoil. You're better off suffering for truth than being complicit in the face of evil. And I feel like we see that on a scale of Mercedes, who risks so much to help the resistance while being employed by Vidal, to Ophelia, who risks ostracizing the fawn as well as her own mother, to be like, fuck your fancy dress. I'm going to follow my own rules that make sense to me. And this is a nihilistic streak that follows with, and Guillermo del Toro has said that this is like a spiritual successor to the devil's backbone. And I feel like the most meaningful connective tissue I can find between the two is that these are films about facing pain and giving into pain and embracing rebirth on your own terms. And I think that is a lovely sentiment, especially for right now, on the heel of a terrible, terrible year where we feel like we've had to choke down so much bullshit and nonsense and what the hell can we do about it when we are restricted to our homes? Like, we can't even organize and protest the way we might normally because we're afraid of crowds like this has been such a perfect storm of complicity and I sense that frustration
0: yeah and I think it speaks to the kind of opening moment of the film where we see Ophelia with the reverse nosebleed and it's quite a shocking image to see a young girl with you know lying on the ground with like her blood kind of reflowing into her nose mm-hmm. uh, because it suggests danger it suggests harm is going to come to this young girl who we're going to come to care about very 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 much however it's a moment of power and I think that's what the end tells us is it's a moment where her blood and her sticking to her principles and what she believes in and what she knows to be right is, what will allow her to transcend. And that is the moment the boundaries are crossed between power and status and reality. And it's a really complicated, but also fully realized moment. And what I mean by fully realized moment is that Del Toro has laid this out all very simply. So when you get to the end, we're like, of course, of course, this is how it had to roll out. Of course, this is how it had to happen. You sacrifice because there is a purpose. And, you know, whether you want to believe if you want to make a youtube video about whether Ophelia's fairy tale was real which a fuck you be fine um mercedes and the rebels will remember her but she's also fucking princess and then
1: gonna be queen of the underworld it seems great Yeah. There are levels of resistance for everyone in society. And sometimes fighting the good fight is staying alive. Fighting the good fight under capitalism is enjoying yourself and not evaluating yourself on your income. There are levels and shades of resistance all the way down to fucking childhood. Mm -hmm. And I love that this film gives credit to that and gives voice to the young people who are growing up in this world. And they're just like, fuck, man, what the hell do I do? How many compromises do I have to make to even find a meaningful existence under this regime, that's not going away. It's not. And neither is this film, which
0: over 10 years later continues to speak to us, continues to be even more relevant. It's a really seminal film. And I'm so pleased we
1: got to talk about it today. Mm -hmm. As dark as its ending is, I do feel like it ends on a very hopeful note (sighs) Um, that immortality is available to anyone who resists in their own way. And uh, we're part of that resistance. I think we're talking and we're thinking, and, you know, that is enough to make us enemies of a fascist regime.
0: Ah, uh, so that's it.
1: That's that's another year. That's that's 2020. That's year eight.
0: Yeah, it's year eight. We're, we're at year eight of Faculty of Horror. We're at the end of 2020,
1: the darkest, strangest year. I hope so. Bite your tongue. Like, 2021 is is, is looking good, but everything looks good on, you know— December 12th with a bottle of wine in you. It does. <laughs> um, you know, vaccines
0: are here. We need to stay the course. We need to all be vigilant and take care of each other, continue to take care of each other, and continue to be smart. I'm spending Christmas alone, and I'm doing school with it. Mm-hmm. It's all good. It's all good. And if you're spending Christmas
1: alone, I'm also spending Christmas alone with you. I am spending Christmas drunk, like I spend yeah. it every Christmas. It's yeah. just, if you keep drinking, you just stave off the hangover. And um, 2021's problem. That's 2021's problem. <laughs> Speaking of 2021, um, um,
0: January. 2021 we're digging back into what happened in 2020 uh we will be coming up with a game uh-huh. we will be talking about our favorites uh-huh. uh i don't know maybe taking questions maybe taking something we're gonna figure that out but it's maybe gonna be some
1: blooper reels of belches Ugh. We know you all love that. This will be the first year that I haven't edited that compilation. Every year I'm screaming in stitches. I'm going to have to ask Alan if he finds it nearly as funny. But you have to imagine Alex being like, so, about to drop some truth bomb. And you're just on tenterhooks. You're just salivating for what she's going to say next. And it's a resounding belch with a twitch of her eyelid. And it's great. I don't don't know. Maybe you had to be here. (laughs) You had to be in this... (laughs) tiny airless hole
0: that we can be in because I live alone now.
1: But I also feel like the January episode is where we really just let you into the room and we just let loose.
0: Yeah, we we let loose a little bit. Um, I feel like we should take a little bit of time to thank the people who have made uh, 2020 bearable, i.e. all of you people, you wonderful people listening. Thank you for sticking with us and and talking to us and, and just being part of this conversation. Yeah. Um thank you to Kay and everyone at Salem Horror Fest. We
1: miss you so much.
0: We miss you and we hope we get to be with you again next year. If it's safe. If it's safe. Um, but I, we we're, we're going to be there with you when it's safe. That's the moral of the kind story. It, yeah. um, we want to thank our friends Stacy and Anthony at Gay Lords of Darkness. It was wonderful to kind of, you know, pair up with you in the last episode. We crossed
1: over. We crossed
0: over, and uh, we are desperate to, for you guys to come up to Toronto or for us to, when it's safe, go to you. And, and then, of course, Alan. 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 The biggest win of 2020 Uh, was Alan. Alan Johnson, um, amazing drummer, even better editor, wonderful human being, Alan Johnson. Uh, He also co-hosts the podcast Diminished Returns about film sequels. Highly recommend you guys check that out. It's so fun. And so funny and so many wonderful Scottish accents. And Alan has just been the best. And we are so happy he is part of our team and so grateful to continue working with him. Uh, And then, of course, I'm just going to say each other. We're grateful for each other. We're We're grateful. grateful. We're grateful for Andrea and Alex. Grateful. Um, And we're grateful for uh, films like Pan's Labyrinth and Guillermo del Toro. And the films that make us think and wonder and stand in awe of
1: what we can be and what we should be. yell, bang our fists against this table. That's what it's all about. It's what we're here for. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next month. And until 2021, office hours are closed.
3: Songs in Andalusia, the shooting site in the days of 39. Oh, please leave the ventana open. Federico dead and gone, bullet holes in the cemetery wall. The black car, the gunny of the beer. Vanished bombs on the Costa Rica. I'm dying in on, on the DC tonight. Vanished the... Oh, mon corps a fond oh, my corps the need